Hey, if you've got your Bibles this morning, um, open them up to the book of 1 Peter. In fact, uh, when you get there, you might put a little marker in there because we're going to be there for a while. We're going to be there for the next four months, in fact, walking through this very important New Testament epistle. And we want to begin talking today about the idea of being an outsider. When Kim and I lived in Denver, we had the rich privilege of serving the Imbondo community, uh, which is a community of Congolese immigrants that um, support one another um, in the places in the world where they find themselves far away from home. There are chapters of the Imbondo community in Denver, here in Phoenix, in major cities all across the United States, for that matter, all around the world, places to where these dear people have been scattered because of war and hardship and suffering. And even here in this great land of opportunity, they still know what it feels like every single day to feel like they are an outsider in the place where they are trying to raise their families. These Central Africans are incredibly hardworking. They are self-reliant. They are filled with character. But still, it is very hard, as you can imagine. And so they have lots of and lots of questions. And so Kim and I served as a resource to them to answer questions and encourage them in their new home. Questions about how to communicate with the schools and the administration in these schools that were educating their children. Questions about doctors and hospitals where they would need to go to be treated when they were sick. Questions about why Americans smile at people they don't even know. More than anything else, they had questions about how to retain their identity, hold on to their languages, their values, and their faith in a place so unlike the one that they call home. In the world of the Bible, people like our friends from Central Africa, they would have been called exiles. One of the things that I shared with them to encourage them was the story of my family's arrival to this country 125 years before. And how they also, they came from a land of turmoil and war, and they were looking for many of the same things that they were looking for too. My great-great-grandfather, August Fleischmann, was 39 years old when he arrived with his wife and seven children on a ship that had sailed from Hamburg, and they came through the Castle Garden Immigration Center in Manhattan. This was before there was an Ellis Island. August was thoroughly German for his entire life. He looked German, he spoke German, he lived German. And though he lived here in America for 44 years, he was always a German living in America. One of those seven children that came with him on that ship was a little boy named Gustav. He was my great-grandfather. As he got older, he started going by Gus. He, too, was very German. That is the land where he was born. But he grew up here, and so he was able to navigate both worlds much more so than his father could. But Gustav lived his entire life easily identifiable as a German-American. His son, Leonard Gustav Fleischmann, was my grandfather. He was the first generation to be born here in America. He spoke English his whole life. And while he was raised in a home and a small village and a church where people spoke and functioned as Germans, he worked hard as he became a young man to move into the mainstream of American life. But Leonard was always a first-generation American who hailed from a German family. His son, Warren, is my father, the second 
generation born in America. And he knew a handful of German phrases, and he could tell stories about German family gatherings growing up. In fact, he plans to be buried when the time comes back in the German burial plot. But besides that, there really isn't much else there. The language is gone, the traditions are gone. He is an American with a German heritage. And then there's me. I've got the last name with the real funny spelling and oversized nose. Pretty much that's all I've got left. I remember late in my life, my, late in his life, my grandfather asking me, Mike, tell me something. Are you still spelling your last name with two N's on the end of it? To me, that sounded like a funny question. Like, like I would just change my name and mess up my entire, you know, credit report. But as for a man whose father had come to the Castle Garden Immigration Center, where they would arbitrarily change someone's name on the spot and just give them a new name because their original one was too hard to pronounce or to spell, holding on and passing down the distinctive spelling of the family name to him, that was a concern that stayed with him his whole life. We weren't always insiders. But over time, we get used to being insiders. It certainly happened with my family. In the very beginning, they felt incredibly out of place in their new country. But over time, we get used to being insiders, and it's almost hard to remember it any other way. Certainly, that has been true for us as American Christians. For a long, long time, we've gotten used to being cultural insiders. We were the ones that were respected, we were listened to, we were trusted. And even if our faith wasn't everyone's cup of tea, still they respected us for it. For reading the good book and for attending church services, for living according to Christian virtues. But over time, gradually, slowly, almost imperceptibly, somehow something changed. Many of us as Christians have gotten the distinct feeling that ever so steadily we have moved from being insiders to outsiders in the culture in which we are living. And not only can this be challenging, it can be disorienting for us. For those who have been on the inside track for so long to suddenly feel marginalized or dismissed or or worse, I thought we were the respected ones. Certainly this is a new experience for us. But we are not the first Christians to experience this. For in fact, the earliest Christians living in the time of the New Testament, with very few exceptions, they would not have known it any other way. In fact, you could make the case that the Bible is actually beginning to make more sense to us precisely because we are more on the outside of our culture than perhaps ever before. The Bible was written to people, and throughout history it has been read by people, and to this day, believers circling the globe who know what it is to be marginalized for their faith, to be persecuted for following Jesus, to suffer as Christians. The Bible was written primarily with people just like this in mind. And while none of us would ever choose mistreatment or persecution for our faith, I know that I wouldn't. Many of us have this increasing awareness that the message of the Bible is actually taking on new clarity precisely because we are in a position to see it like never before because we are more on the outside of our own culture and society perhaps than we have ever been. Having reminders each day more and more that this place 
isn't home. In fact, we are exiles and strangers, and we are looking and we are longing for a country of our true citizenship. Living in one place, yet belonging in another place, this concept actually is starting to make more and more sense to us. The New Testament book of First Peter in particular is one of those books. Written to people who are living as outsiders in one place, but longing for the place where they do belong. So if you have your Bible open in front of you, it begins this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, of course, as you may remember, in the world of the Bible, the first word in the letter was the name of the person writing the letter, which is the exact opposite in our world. It's the last word of the letter, which actually their way makes a lot more sense if you think about it, rather than being the very last word. Have you ever read a long letter ever? And partway through said, I need to just double check to make sure that I see who's writing this, because otherwise I'm not sure if this makes sense or not. I've done, you flip to the end, now who was writing this thing again? It actually makes more sense in the letters of the ancient world to solve the problem. The very first thing it identified is who this is coming from, from Peter. The preeminent apostle of the early church, friend, follower, and believer in Jesus, personally appointed by him to be among his representatives in the world and to all nations upon Jesus' departure. The one of whom Jesus said, and I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Peter is writing this letter from Rome. He's living there quietly, keeping a low profile out of fear for his own safety. He does not know it yet, but he's writing this letter out of what will prove to be the final years of his life before he suffers all the way to death for Jesus. Peter likely did not know most of his readers personally, but he knew their situation because he was living it too. He wrote to encourage them that not only were they called to faith in these difficult days of scattering, but God was calling them to remarkable hope in the midst of these days. We don't know who specifically the original recipients of the letter were, Christian believers, obviously, Living in regions scattered across Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, that's where Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia were. Some of these readers may have come from Jewish backgrounds, but most certainly had been saved out of Gentile backgrounds, but he addresses all of them as exiles. Now, when we say exiles, it's important to understand that this had a broader meaning than we generally hear in that word today. What we usually mean when we say exile in our modern world is someone who is banned from their homeland, usually for political reasons. And exile could have meant that, but it also meant a whole lot of other things besides that. An exile, per didemoi, was someone, anyone, who did not have legal standing in the place where they were living. 
So in our world, that could encompass a lot of words, a political exile, an illegal alien, an undocumented migrant, a refugee fleeing from safety, a foreigner. Regardless of the reason why they landed, it meant someone who in the place where they landed was a cultural outsider. In their world, they called that an exile. So our Central African friends would have been what they called exiles. My great-great-grandfather and his family would have been what they called exiles. The Roman Empire was filled with exiles. Strategically displacing and resettling groups throughout the empire was part of Rome's plan to strengthen their hold of the lands that they conquered and to weaken those who might be disruptive of their rule. So millions of people were uprooted and resettled for the purposes of Rome. Many of the conquered peoples were displaced out of their homelands because they were perceived to be a threat in the region. So uprooting them to a new area where they would have an outsider status was a way to diminish their potential influence. Many of those who experienced persecution under the new regime, they left out of their own free will. Like my ancestors, they got out while they still could get out. Others moved for the opportunity it provided. Veterans of the Roman army, freed slaves, homesteaders, those seeking upward mobility, for them moving to help Romanize a new region provided opportunities for them and their families to advance personally. And what's more, the Christians who received this letter, who were living in Asia Minor, they were located in a region where the emperor was aggressively moving people out, moving people in to establish colonies that looked talked and acted more like Rome. So they were living in a world where on all sides, millions of people for a myriad of reasons had been scattered and resettled into new lands and they understood the experience of living in one place but being home in another. That's clearly what it meant to them to live as an exile. To the exiles, he said. And even for those who maybe still were living in their original homeland, by virtue of their faith in Jesus, they were rapidly being pushed to the margins of the culture around them. Now, the good news was that the official policy of the Roman Empire was religious tolerance. The Romans believed that it was advantageous when they conquered foreign lands to not quarrel with them about their local religious convictions. That's the good news. As long as their religion, number one, didn't disturb the peace, number two, it didn't offend public standards of morality, or three, tried to convert native Romans, they were free to believe anything they wanted to believe and worship any way they wanted to worship. The bad news was that increasingly Christianity was considered to be socially intolerant. Their moral convictions and their belief that Jesus was the only true way was considered to be increasingly offensive to the standards of the broader culture. There was increasing suspicion of Christians for all of their talk about this other kingdom and how loyal they would truly prove to be to the regime. And of course, they were dead set on converting anyone that they came into contact with. And for all of these things that the empire was willing to tolerate, these peculiar Christians were no longer one of them. Christians had become the consummate cultural outsiders, and they had moved from disliked to dismissed to insulted to marginalized to openly abused. 
And they were living every day with increasing fear. What if, God forbid, state-sanctioned discrimination opens up against us for our beliefs? And by the way, that wasn't fake news either. Christians were suffering for their faith at the time of this letter, but it was going to very soon get much worse. Within just a few years of this letter, open persecution against Christians would become official government policy and martyrdom would become a real possibility for anyone who took Jesus too seriously. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exile. Scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So how do you shine out your faith in the midst of a society that is increasingly hostile to what you believe in the Jesus you believe in? Let me ask that again. So how do you shine out your faith in the midst of a society that is increasingly hostile to what you believe in the Jesus you believe in. I want you to understand at the outset, that is the question that Peter is trying to answer in this letter. This is the encouragement that Peter is trying to bring in his letter. Now, often at the end of the message, I will say something like this. I know that I've said a lot of things today. I'm not sure everything you heard me say, but here's what I was trying to say. Let me sum up what the point was. Peter does the same thing in the letter, but rather than waiting till the very end, he does it up at the very beginning. Now, I don't know if it necessarily comes out in your translation or not, but actually the sum of what he is trying to say is in the very first word after he introduces himself. I'm going to say a lot of things in this letter to you, and I'm not sure everything you're going to hear me say, but what I'm trying to say to you is that you are chosen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. Exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So if you don't hear anything else that I'm going to say today, then hear this. I may not know exactly what it feels like to live where you're living in the world right now, but if you should happen to feel misunderstood, misconstrued, put down, pushed aside, marginalized, I want you to know that to the one in the universe by whom it matters most, you are chosen. This is a really important theme for Peter, and it's something he's going to keep coming back to time and time again in this letter. You may be rejected by the people in the world around you, but don't forget chapter 2 and verse 4, you are chosen and you are precious in the sight of God. You may be overlooked with those with importance in this world, but don't forget chapter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen people, you are God's treasured possession holy and royal in the kingdom of God. Not only are you an insider, not only do you belong there, but you are royal family there. And you need to remember that this is your primary identity because many times when you're feeling marginalized or dismissed, you tend to start seeing that as your identity. And he said, you need to see that your identity is as an insider in the place and with the one who matters most. You are not rejected. You are not forgotten. You are not an outsider. In the place that matters most and to the one who matters most, you have been personally chosen. There's always something great about being chosen. I mean, at least if it is for 
something good, not if you've been chosen for an audit or you know, a random traffic stop, but if you've been chosen to receive the scholarship, if you've been chosen for admission, you've been chosen for the job, even if your number is chosen in a raffle, you still go running down to the front like you're some kind of a big deal. It's, it's always a big deal to be chosen. Some of you may know that we have a four-year-old West Highland Terrier puppy named Gidget, and she's a wonderful and loyal member of our family. But sometime back, we had the sense she would be happier if she had a little brother or sister to share life with, and so we got her a little brother by the name of Max. So Kim flew up to Denver one day and to the same home where Gidget had come from with the responsibility of choosing... And bringing back that same day Gidget's new symboling. And so she drove up to Denver and she drove out to the home and she prayed over the puppies and everything. There's a lot of pressure in this. I mean, this choice, this is going to be Gidget's brother. This is going to be a part of our family forever. So Kim said to me on the phone, he came to me. It was a God thing. I just, I just knew this was the one I was to choose. And, and Max is precious, but he's seriously ADHD and he's not terribly bright. And there's been more than one time when I've been cleaning up a mess in the living room because he just couldn't hold it or, or picking up a book that he's chewed apart. And I've hollered across the room in frustration, you chose the wrong dog. And that's not true. That's a mean thing to say. But sometimes when I'm just picking up puppy truffles in the living room, it, it feels like it. But we, we really are glad that we chose Max. But, but there is always something good about being chosen. To those scattered across the empire who are criticized and marginalized, misunderstood, sometimes mistreated, even if you should suffer for following Jesus, be encouraged because in the place that matters most and to the one that matters most, you have been chosen. And chosen how? Watch this now, because beginning in verse 2, Peter unpacks how God has gone about choosing you and how every single person in the Trinity, that is God the Father and his Spirit and his Son Jesus, every single one of them personally has their fingerprints on your life in choosing you to be an eternal insider in the kingdom of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, chosen one. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to, now this is the foundation, this is the source, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by or through, this is the manner by which it happens, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and toward this end, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Every single person of the Trinity, did you see that? The Father, the Spirit, the Son, Jesus Christ, every single one of them have their fingerprints on you in choosing you to belong and to be blessed among his most treasured possession in all of the universe. You are anything but marginalized or rejected. In the place that matters most and with the one that matters most, you have been chosen to be his treasured possession. You have been chosen, Peter writes in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is the foundation of his choice of you. 
Now, my guess is probably you don't know a whole lot of Greek words, but this is one actually you know already. The word there is prognosis. Prognosis literally means to know something beforehand. Now, we use it usually in a medical sense. When the doctor talks to you about your diagnosis, it is expected that based upon her training and her expertise, she will give you a prognosis. She will articulate for you in advance the probable course of your condition. Now, lots of people prognosticate about what will happen. Economists do it. Climate scientists do it. Sportscasters do it. Some of them do it very good. Some of them do it very poorly. But it presupposes some insight to know in advance. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been chosen of God according to the perfect, infallible, timeless foreknowledge, prognosis of God the Father. The Bible says that before you ever gave your first thought to God, before you were born, for that matter, before the world itself was born, Ephesians chapter 1 says, according to the kind intention of his own will, not because of any foreseen merit or goodness or willingness even, but solely from the graciousness of God's own heart towards you, God the Father, he chose you. But I thought I made a choice to follow God. Well, you did. Of course you did. There's absolutely no one following Jesus as Savior and Lord who is being held there against their will. So God, before the foundation of the world, knew me and he chose me. And then later, at some point in my life, as a free and unconstrained decision of my will, I chose to give my heart to him. How does that work exactly? I don't know exactly. You don't know. So like this is some kind of mystery? Yes, in fact, it is. On some level, a divine mystery, which I understand to be true, but which I cannot fully unpack this side of heaven. Well, maybe we should try to sort it out. Well, you won't be the first to try. So maybe what this means is that God fast-forwarded the tape. To the point in my life where I received the gospel, and then when he saw that I was going to choose him, then he rewinded the tape all the way back to the beginning, and he chose me because he knew that later in the tape, I, in fact, was going to choose him. Yeah, I don't think so. Don't you feel like it's important that we get this ironed out? Less and less. Over 30 years ago, I wrote something just on the inside cover of my Bible. In, in fact, I, I looked this week to find out I, I don't even know who this quotation was from. But it was meaningful enough for me back then to write it in the front cover of my Bible, and I think it's even more meaningful to me today about my incessant need sometimes to iron out the mystery that is in God. The quotation I wrote was this. I tried to understand God by breaking him up straightening tangled lines into clear patterns. I got them all sorted out into neat parts with their own places and boundary lines. And God started to get lost. I've had to increasingly get used to the fact that I can't perfectly diagram out and neatly sort out everything in the realm of God's eternal person and purposes. 
God's sovereign, gracious gracious choice according to the kind intention of his will based upon the eternal foreknowledge of the Father is one of those things. It is one of those beautiful, divine mysteries. God chose me and God chose you. And absolutely anyone who will freely receive him and his gracious offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, no matter how long that process takes in their life, no matter how much of a struggle it is, it will come. And when it does, we can be certain that they were chosen. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we always thank God for you. And we continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Oh, when the Bible talks to us about God's choice, this is always intended to be a word of encouragement to those of us who are living in faith and never a word of exclusion to those who are not. Let me say that one more time. Whenever the Bible talks about God's choice of us, it's always intended to be a word of encouragement to those who are living in faith and never a word of exclusion to those who are not. The reality of God's choice ultimately is meaningful to those of us who are already in to look back with praise and honor to the glory of God's grace and to look forward with renewed confidence, especially in times of discouragement. Have you ever had one of those? Especially in times of doubt, have you ever had one of those? In moments of weakness, in moments of temptation, especially when I wonder how long I'm going to be able to hold on and if I will actually make it. This is precisely when it is such an encouragement to know that I am here in this walk of faith because God chose me to be here. Knowing everything there is to know about me, and that means the good, and that means the bad, and that means the ugly. Knowing in advance how I would pledge my loyalty to him and turn right around and fold on Jesus when the pressure came. Peter knew a thing or two about that. You'll deny me three times before this night is over, Jesus said. Hey, Jesus, I may be a lot of things, but I'm telling you one thing I'm not. I'm not a quitter. I don't back down for the sake of a friend. No, before this night is over, you will. But we'll get through this. You know why? Because I already know. And knowing all of this as I do, yet still I say, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's okay. I already know. But I choose you anyway. The powerful, mysterious reality of God's choice is most meaningful specifically to those of us who are in, and especially when we feel the most vulnerable in our faith. Because knowing everything I would go through still in the kind, gracious, undeserved intention of his will, still, despite all of that, he chose me. Christians, no matter what you're going through right now, Christian, no matter how badly you have failed this week, God's fingerprints are on you. Every single person of the Trinity personally has reached in to secure his eternal, gracious choice of you. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
Now, oftentimes when we bring up sanctification, our minds immediately go to what we might call progressive sanctification. That is the ongoing daily work of the Holy Spirit in our lives by which we are conformed increasingly into the image of Jesus Christ. And of course, that is a very important part of sanctification. But actually, that is not when and where sanctification begins. Sanctification begins at the moment, the instant of regeneration. When the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence inside of you and seals you for eternity and baptizes you into his body and at that instant of time declares you to be definitively, unswervingly for eternity a saint or literally a holy one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, Paul writes, To the church of God in Corinth, who by the way knew what it was to fail from time to time, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are sanctified, perfect tense, it means a finished, a finished action with ongoing result. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. All those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are they? They have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. There is no such thing as an unsanctified child of God. Now, there are some children of God who run around and act like they're unsanctified from time to time. I know that I've done that. I don't know if anyone else here has. But there are some children of God from time to time who run around and act like they're not sanctified. But a child of God who is categorically unsanctified is a contradiction in terms. Because all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And chosen to this end, chosen to the end of obedience in Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Now, when he says obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, that might not immediately sound familiar to you. But Peter is unmistakably using language that takes us back to the book of Exodus. And that is not the last time he's going to do this. In fact, you can make the case that the New Testament book of 1 Peter is an exposition on the Old Testament book of Exodus. Because Exodus is all about God's gracious choice of his covenant people, Israel, and God's choosing them to be his own treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. And so back in the book of Exodus, having brought them out and brought them up from the land of Egypt, he says to Israel, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, and if you will keep my covenant, you will be my own possession Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then it says, when morning came, early in the morning, Moses gathered all the people together before an altar at the base of the mountain. And there were sacrifices on the altar. He read to them the words of God's covenant. And then here's what it says in Exodus 24. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. 
Then Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And do you hear the echoes of Exodus in Jesus' voice as he's speaking to Peter and the other disciples in the upper room? And he said to them, this cup of communion, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is on the pattern of the old covenant, but with the perfect sacrifice of myself on the cross and the indwelling of my spirit within you, with this new covenant, you will always belong to me. Because you're chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the means of the sanctification of his own spirit living inside of you, and to this end that you may obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood question. Is obedience really a part of the package? Of course it is. Obedience to the covenant, sprinkling with God's grace, the sacrifice of Jesus, obedience and sprinkling, it always goes hand in hand. That's why the book of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from what that which he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. To who? To all those who obey him. But what if I should fail to obey? Oh, you will. And Peter knew that as well as anyone. But if I fail to obey, does that mean I'm back out on the outside? Oh, heavens no. He chose you. He chose you not because you do obey, but to the end that you will obey. Obedience to his word is his promise. Just as much as being sprinkled with his redeeming blood is a promise. God has chosen you to this unstoppable end. These words of God's gracious choice, even the obedience in your life, are meant to breathe encouragement into the depths of our soul. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's chosen ones, exiles, outsiders, scattered throughout provinces all over Asia Minor, you who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood to people just like you, to people just like me, grace and peace be yours abundantly. Look, I don't know exactly what it feels like to be living in your life right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if you're feeling a little bit more like an outsider than maybe you used to feel. Perhaps feeling just a little bit more dismissed, maybe barely tolerated, a little bit insulted, marginalized. Maybe sometimes you fear what's coming next. Maybe sometimes you wonder if it's almost time to start fighting back. I just want you to know that the people who first read this letter, they would have totally understood all of that. We began this morning with this question. And it's not just for today, but an overarching theme for this letter written to Christians just like you. How do you shine out your faith in the midst of a society that is increasingly hostile to what you believe and to the Jesus you believe in? And there's so much more to come in the weeks 
to come, living in holiness even when you're being mistreated and tempted to punch back, how to bear up under suffering and not only endure it, but be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is living inside of you. So much more to come. But what Peter begins with is what I want to leave you with. And it begins with an unshakable confidence that you are anything but rejected. You are anything but forsaken. You are not an outsider. That is not your identity. And maybe you don't always exactly quite fit in around here. And that makes sense because at the end of the day, as a believer, you really don't belong here. The Bible says we are just passing through. We are strangers and aliens. We are exiles. But in the place that matters most and to the one that matters most, you are wondrously, graciously, unmistakably chosen. His fingerprints are all over you. And to him and in him, grace and peace are yours in fullest measure. Because you are. Because I am. Because in Christ we have been chosen. Maybe you're here this morning, you're listening to me, maybe you're in this room right now, maybe you're joining us online, and you say, Mike, how can I know if I have been chosen of God? There's one easy way to find out, and you can find out right now, because the Bible says that all who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and yours, all who call upon him, they have been called holy. They are chosen They are treasured in his sight. The question is, would you have enough faith in this moment to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus? Even in this moment, you could pray a prayer just like this. Heavenly Father, I know that you love me, that you created me. Enough that you would send your only son, Jesus, to pay the price for my sins, that I would be forgiven freely and I would be family forever. And in this moment, I take you at your word. I take you at your word that your promise is sure and that you will embrace me. I take you at your word that long before I ever even gave it a thought, by you, I'm chosen. I am no outsider, but with you, I'm forever treasure. In Jesus' name, we pray a prayer like this. Amen. Now listen, if you just prayed a prayer like this, whether you're sitting in this room or you're joining me online, what the Bible says is you just got saved. And even if there's far more mystery and details to sort out, at this moment, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. He has baptized you into his body, has come to live inside of you, and you are definitively, from this moment into all eternity, you are sanctified, you are holy, you are set apart to him and to him alone. We want to help you to grow into that. If you made that decision today, would you reach out and let us know because we are here to help you on this journey to grow into the reality of that which you have definitively become. Because you are no outsider. In the place that matters most and to the one who matters most, you are chosen.